Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. Focusing on the supports of Dharma and the treasure they represent, Jetsama Akon Lamo explains that in truth, the Lama never leaves you. Whenever we are on the path and we have a spiritual friend in the form of a teacher, whether it is on the uh, uh, earlier path of Theravadan Buddhism, or whether we have a... uh, a, a, a spiritual guru who, who is, from the Vajrayana point of view, a very profound friend who one can expect will mingle with our lives and hopefully mingle with our mind streams and uh, give us the, the appropriate information in order to practice the path. There is one set of instructions that is almost always given in one way or another. And so I'd like to give these instructions. They are about gathering and accomplishing merit or meritorious activity. Here in our society, we are taught in a materialistic way. We are taught that if, of course, if we, if we get education, we will make money. If we make money, we will get things. If we get things, we will be happy and we can pass those things onto our children who hopefully will be happy also. And that's the idea that we have in this society about material things. Very rarely do our parents teach us about, I'd like to say, profitable conduct. We're taught about how to live profitably. Hopefully, if we had good parenting, they taught us about, you know, how to keep a bank bank account and all of those uh, passages of, of adulthood that we learn about. But nowadays, it has become much less popular, unfortunately, for parents to teach us profitable conduct. In other words, how to act, how to present oneself, how to hold oneself, what uh, deeds to act upon, and so forth, that will bring us happiness and joy. We, we in fact, as, as in growing up, we are not really taught that acting in a certain way will bring us happiness or joy, or making offerings in a certain way, or certain kinds of conduct. Generally, what happens is the child imitates the parent. Many times the parent, like any other samsaric being, is neurotic. And we see them acting neurotically in their relationships. And we see that it's like a roll of the dice. According to how we act, half the time it makes, it produces happiness and half the time it doesn't. And sometimes when we're in a real spiral, that means the downward kind, um, we can experience a great deal of neuroses and our children will watch that. Uh, habitual patterning, and they will pattern themselves after it. 
it's natural, it's, it's hardwired in children to do that. And of course, in this day and age, it seems like we have lost touch with what it is that actually creates happiness. We are so confused in our minds. We're in such turmoil. We're always grasping and grabbing and trying. And often we're working very hard at it. It's not that we're lazy. We don't just lay around all day. We're often working very hard at things that ultimately produce no good result. Pursuing endless distractions, the Buddhas have called it. And so we turn to the people of authority in our lives, and we look to them for guidance. Well, we look to the government, and the government says, um, let's cut down on social services, screw the poor people, we'll go to war. So maybe that's not so good. So then we look at our parents, and let's see, parents are on maybe second or third marriage, and you know, they're, trying, they're very, very much trying to, make, to be happy, but they don't know how to be happy, and the parents are in as much turmoil as perhaps the child is. And then the child turns to the teachers and, uh, and even religious figures. And if the religious figure is not enlightened, oftentimes they are led down horrible paths, perhaps of even, even abusive paths, where they are taught some strict dogma, dogma that has no relationship to anything, really. Or, or in the worst case scenario, they are uh, used and abused by some figure of a, a religious figure of authority. So where do we actually go to understand what it is the Buddha taught about cause and result? Because this is where the Buddha really shown, sh uh, showed his immense wisdom, his immense capacity, is that not only Shakyamuni Buddha himself but every teacher and lama that has studied his teachings, followed his ways, and accomplished. And all the teachers yet to come that revealed terma, including Guru Pache and those that uh, were treasure revealers later on, each in their own way taught us proper conduct. Proper conduct is actually part of our Mundro practice in which we learn to turn the mind toward dharma. And that doesn't mean, um, what do you call it when somebody, uh, a person that sings the rap of a certain company, and what is it? The part, sort of, yeah, like a public, uh, public relations, right. It's not like that. Our teachers actually indicate to us how we should live. And actually that's one of the signs of the Buddha, is that the Buddha comes to the earth and shows us how to live. Because we are living in confusion. We have not been taught of cause and effect. And this is one thing that Lord Buddha really taught about, was cause and result. And he said that if spiritual thinking isn't reasonable and logical, that is, if one cannot think it through first before, before one decides to really open the heart in faith, then we should think again. Lord Buddha's teachings are always reasonable and logical. 
And he teaches us that, for instance, if we are lonely and unhappy, we should look to find the causes of that. He teaches us that the causes are never outside. They seem to be, that they're never outside, though, because actually we are living with our own karmic habitual tendencies and propensities. So if we are lonely and unhappy, we should look to the deeper causes. The deeper causes may be that in the past, whether it be in this lifetime or in some f previous lifetime, we allowed the others around us to be unsupported and lonely and unhappy. Or perhaps we committed some profound non-virtue with our minds. And so now in our mind, we uh, have the habit or the result of loneliness and unhappiness. Perhaps in the past, we caused someone mental suffering or mental affliction. And so now in the present, we find ourselves feeling that same mental affliction, but although we can only remember since the time of our birth or somewhat after that, we don't know what the cause was, really. It's, it's hard to see. But we have to go by the Buddha's teachings because Lord Buddha is... The, that state of enlightenment which has the wisdom to see causes and results. So we are taught if we have certain, certain results within our life, such as unhappiness and loneliness, we should look for deep causes. <clears throat> we should look that if we can't find some reason in this lifetime for our loneliness and unhappiness, that is to say that we ourselves have not brought about a similar loneliness and unhappiness to others, then we should think that probably the cause has been in the deep past. And so we, we must assume that in the past we have caused some unhappiness to others. Now here we are on the path. Oh, and I'm sorry, we are, also, we are told then to apply the antidote. I shouldn't leave that part out. And the antidote, of course, would be to do one's best to uphold the Bodhisattva vow and to benefit others as strongly and as purposefully as we possibly can. And of course, as monks and nuns, we will do that within the context of Dharma activities. And as lay people, hopefully within the context of Dharma activities as well. And yet we also have many opportunities in our lives to be uh, of benefit to others in ordinary but very special ways, such as some of us are doctors or nurses or um, counselors or, you know, uh, those that help others. So there are human ways to help others and there are extraordinary Dharma ways to help others. And we should apply that antidote. One thing that n not only I have noticed, but Practically, every pop psychologist that has arms to write a book with uh, nowadays will tell you that in doing for others, one becomes happy. That self-absorption and ego-cherishing, only, only thinking about what you want and what you don't have, leads to further unhappiness and selfishness. And so it's doing for others that actually brings up the spirit. And I personally know that this is true. I know that this is true. And so what I would like to talk today is about our opportunity right here. 
We have a tremendous opportunity. Whenever llamas come to this temple, they say, this is a living jewel in America. Hi. The, hi. <laughs> That's what they say after they say hi. <laughs> they say that this temple is a living jewel, that it is, um, it's the real thing. They use phrases like that that this is really dharma, <coughs> this is the right stuff. And they also say that you have all the objects of support here. And we don't really know what that means, but we're glad we have it. So I'll tell you. <coughs> we have the visible objects of support, meaning that, well, for instance, right in front of us, we have um, the... <laughs> yeah, Ani. We have the Ani. We have the cosmological display of the mind of enlightenment. That is the sand mandala that remains there. His Holiness allowed it to remain so that we can have with us that display and take refuge and can, you know, meditate and uh, be mindful of that and to learn. It is the very display of the mind of enlightenment. Each object in the mandala has specific meaning and so forth. And so we are delighted to have this. And then we also have uh, beautiful statues. Now the statues are not specifically the objects of refuge, but they are physical supports for the objects of refuge. In other words, our eyes are allowed to rest on these objects. Our eyes are allowed to, uh, for instance, study the hand positions, the, the objects that, that are being held, and to learn from them the meaning of the objects, because each of the objects that any of the statues hold uh, has to do with a quality of the enlightened Buddha. So each and every object that is held has to do with quality or maybe in some cases activity, like in the case of, say, a statue of Mahakala that may hold a great lasso. And he lassoes the uh, negativity and, and uh, pacifies it. So it has to do with the qualities and the activities of the enlightened mind. And we ourselves use the same images in our practice so that we can practice these very qualities and these very activities. For instance, if we generate ourselves as Manjushri, we then are holding the sword that cuts the darkness of ignorance. And then also we have uh, a place, an altar, by which we can make many offerings. And we try to make the offerings as extensive and as beautiful and as exceptional as possible. Um, maybe we wouldn't think to have so many flowers in our own home. Maybe we wouldn't think to offer so many bowls of rice. Why would you want to have so much rice or so much water or so many candles or why would you put so much um, like uh, sweets and delicacies and things on the cabinets like that? You wouldn't do that in your own home. And that reminds you that here we are in this amazing temple with these objects of refuge, and these, uh, and we are making many offerings. And so it reminds us in our mind that these are offerings, and we again, in some subtle way, offer them when we see them being offered that way. 
And so that is a condition by which we can practice virtue and gather merit. That is, any time we make an offering to an altar, there's a great deal of merit in that, and our minds become more purified and more virtuous. And so that is a cause for happiness. And so here as well, each of the statues, they're not just ordinary statues, that is to say lumps that are formed in a certain form looking like the Buddha, but each of them has been, has been uh, empowered. And uh, there are specific mantras that are within each of the statues. And there are uh, mantras of, uh, usually there are mantras of, that are general, and there are mantras that are speci specific to the deity. Inside there, are certain, there is like a central channel as though, uh, there, as though it were a living deity where the central channel is the uh, beginning emanation of the deity's form. Uh, inside each and every one of them is like a, sometimes a copper tube or uh, depending on maybe a, it can be wood, but like the spine of the deity. And so in every single one, there are profound prayers and uh, many offerings. Some of them have relics in them. Some of them have uh, jewels, no really uh, fabulous diamonds. So there's no sense stealing any of them. Uh, we actually had somebody in Poolsville steal something from, steal a ring from the stupa once and lost his finger. The finger with the ring on it. So he returned the ring. So these things, uh, you don't want to do that. You want to think of whatever offerings are in there as being the very jewel of enlightenment. And that that is, you know, something precious. And then by the Lama's power, each and every statue is empowered. That is to say, the Lama generates the deity and invites the deity to remain. And so the deity actually remains as this uh, statue. That doesn't mean Gurumpache is there and not there, or there and not here. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that these should, statues should be treated like living Buddhas. And that is the cause for great merit. Uh, there are many practices that are done, particularly during Losar, where we take a statue of the Buddha and we carefully wash and say many prayers and say, like, although the Buddha does not need washing, by this washing may all sentient beings be cleansed of the suffering of non-virtue, like that. And so the, the, the uh, cleansing of the Buddha is a tremendous virtuous uh, offering to make, you know, to cleanse the Buddha with um, saffron water and uh, to offer the Buddha a cloak, although the Buddha is never cold. Uh, one would offer that cloak in, in the hopes that by this offering may all sentient beings be free of the suffering of want, of nakedness or of cold or of, uh, of, of not having any clothing, and may they be clothed eventually with the gorgeous raiments of Dharma, like that. So we make these kinds of wishing prayers. And when we make these wishing prayers for others, we are making them for ourselves as well. In fact, there's almost no need to include ourselves in those prayers, although we certainly may, and many of the prayers have words like that, may I and all beings, like that. <clears throat> or may, <clears throat> may all beings and myself included, like that. But whenever we make prayers for the liberation and salvation of all sentient beings, for the end of their suffering, for their continued advance upon the path, 
then surely you must know that by the merit of that, we also are accumulating a great deal of merit to do that very same thing. So that merit is, is ours as well. And in fact, when you accomplish something meritorious by dedicating that merit, the minute you dedicate it, you can no longer burn it up in an adverse way. It's like put it, you put it in the bank, you can't spend it anymore. And even though it goes to benefit all sentient beings, it's still in your bank. It's awful we have to, have to explain it that way, but it's a materialistic society. And so that's how we understand things. So whenever we commit some kind of virtuous act, we should immediately think, this I dedicate to the liberation and salvation of all sentient beings. And whenever we go round and round the stupas, trying to, even trying to relieve our own suffering, which I, many of us do and should, really, because uh, we have had cures around the stupas, we have had amazing turnarounds in people's uh, mental states, their habitual tendencies, even mental illness. We've had amazing events come about through <coughs> circumambulating the stupas and making many prayers. Uh, the minute we do that, we should absolutely dedicate that to the liberation and salvation of all sentient beings. And when we pray for our own health, we should not do so without praying for the health of others as well. When we pray for our own happiness, we should think, oh, if I am suffering, and here I am in this land of great fortune, and here I am um, securely, hopefully, upon the path, and here I am in front of the objects of refuse, and yet, yet I can be so miserable. If this is possible, then how much more miserable than I am must other sentient beings be? Those who have no food, who have no home, who are in war, who experience earth changes or tsunami or terrible events such as that. Here I am in comfort and I'm suffering, then therefore I pray that their suffering will cease also. And that turning the mind in that way and beginning to appreciate the condition and the suffering of other sentient beings does two things. And offering you, an offering merit to them does several things. First of all, it builds on, builds on our merit non-virtue uh, scale. We've got the merit on this side, we've got the non-virtue on that side, and we're doing this. We're heavier on this side. So more focus is here. Our minds are more attuned here. And this tends to bring forth ripenings that are more congruous with what we want on our path, more sympathetic, more... Um, <clears throat> more joyful, more fulfilling, more meritorious things will ripen. Happiness will ripen. Uh, because our minds are more focused on the heavier pile. That's naturally how it is. And when we are more focused on the virtue pile rather than the non-virtue pile, it's like something that is sore and raw and inflamed, i.e. the samsaric mind, um, becomes then soothed, calmed. We are not wallowing in the inflammation of it. We are in the virtuous, on the virtuous side now. And so we find that temporarily and then ultimately, more permanently, the inflammation starts to go down. 
the inflammation going down, it's almost like putting, um, I don't know, I, I think of a horrible, raw, terrible rash, and then you put something like hydrocortisone on it, and it calms the, the angriness of it. It calms the rawness of it. So it's a little bit like that. Um, it, it takes the inflammation down a whole lot. And we find that when our, when our minds are calmer and more rested, we are happier. Now, when our minds are very active and very agitated, we may feel more energetic. And sadly, some of us have had so few true moments of happiness and joy and peaceful calm abiding that when we're really active and really hyper and really busy doing something really fun, we think we're great, we're really joyful. Well, then what happens later is like after a sugar high, we're totally wiped out afterwards and we have the other side of that mood swing. You see? So really, ultimately, as we turn our minds towards Dharma, as we begin to uh, co uh, commit virtuous acts and, 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 and to gather uh, meritorious thoughts and ways of being, then we find out that gradually over time, slowly, we become more joyful, happier. We begin to notice things that we didn't notice before, like some beautiful smell, and then we offer it to the Buddhas and we find a moment of happiness. Or some beautiful sight, and then we offer it to the Buddhas, or maybe to our own root guru, and we think, oh, that's, I'm, just for a moment, I felt happy there. Just for a moment. And then we begin to catch on. And that's wonderful. When we start to catch on, that's the right stuff. I think the angels agree with us. <laughs> We're having a little music in our background here. Today what I would like to talk about is what we have here. Not only the objects of support that I've talked about, but we have the stupas. I would like to explain to you the nature of the stupas. I would like to explain to you a little bit about the treasure the treasures in multiple that we have here. To say that there is nothing like this in America sounds prideful, yet I'm not the one saying it, really. I'm telling you what other teachers who have come here and who have been around America have said, that there's nothing else like this, that this is quite remarkable. And I say, well, we're just getting started. I hope it's good. We have here these extraordinary stupas that have been built according to the ancient Payul tradition uh, by a number of lamas, uh, His Holiness, and then Pema, uh, Pem Riggs and Pema Rinpoche, Tuku Riggs and Pema, <clears throat> who was a renowned stupa builder. <coughs> The stupas have been blessed by every lama that has come here, but they have been properly consecrated. About that, there is no doubt. The stupas have different levels, and ultimately when they are born, that is to say after they are completely built, and the lama actually um, 
generates the deity and all the objects of refuge, that is to say the entire mandala of the deities, and descends that entire mandala into the stupa. The stupa becomes then a living presence. The, the stupa becomes like the body of the Buddha, like the Buddha in Nirmanakaya form, that is to say in the physical form. On the bottom of the stupa, there are many objects there that indicate the things of the world to be overcome, such as objects of violence like knives and, and guns and weapons, and they are underneath, buried. And there are prayers and objects and, and images of suppression that go on top of that. And they suppress the things of the world that are harmful, including symbols of death, uh, including symbols of, uh, like there was, uh, we fortunately at the time of the consecration of the, of the rather the um, filling of the Enlightenment stupa, um, his Holiness said, well, it would be good if we had the skull of a wolf to put down underneath there. I went, the skull of a wolf? <laughs> In Maryland. <laughs> so we were rushing around thinking, how in the world does one get the skull of a wolf? I mean, you know, trying to figure it out. And then we, we had the great good fortune, I guess, of a, a, a fox up the road got run over, and we had an intact fox skull. So we brought the poor little fox skull to His Holiness and said, would this do? And he looked, this is pathetic. Look how small it is. <laughs> well, if that's what you call wolf in America, I guess it'll have to do. <laughs> so it turns out the fox gets in there. <laughs> But we have all these objects that, and, and that was the symbol of death. And we have symbols of old age, of sickness, of death, of all kinds of suffering, and the suppression of that. And then above that is, are there are different layers. There is like the practices, generation stage practice, or beginning stage practice, generation stage practice, uh, completion stage practice, accomplishment, and then there are the... Um, uh, objects and prayers and mantras that are associated with all these different levels wrapped in a very succinct way, arranged uh, perfectly like the mandala of the deities. And it has to be arranged very perfectly. And it's all very secret and careful. Nobody can look in there unless they've been on the stupa diet, which is no animal flesh and and uh, no alcohol and no um, sexual activity and no ordinary stuff of any kind while you're building the stupa. And um, the, the uh, uh, many, many gazillions, I don't even know how many, of mantras that are rolled so tight, some done by machine uh, with saffron water sprayed on them because we could get them rolled tighter, and some of them done by uh, students who themselves were reciting mantra at the same time they were uh, rolling them very tightly and sticking to the, um, to the uh, stupa diet. So everything very carefully arranged, everything very perfect. Uh, no one should, uh, you can't leave a drop of sweat or a bit of DNA in, in the stupa. 
unless you have achieved enlightenment, you know. So nobody gets to really climb in there without being clothed up and very, very careful. So when the Lama then uh, brings the stupa to fruition, there is, of course, the, the, um, the vestibule in which the deity sits. And the deity itself is uh, completely uh, consecrated like that, like the deities on the altar. And they themselves have all the accomplishment figures in them. And then the relics are at the top. Uh, or, and some of them are wrapped up to the spine. That is a very large piece of wood with mantra written all over it going down the middle. Some of them are wrapped, body, speech, and mind, mantra of enlightenment. And so then when the Lama descends the deities into the stupa, the stupa is completely able to receive every blessing that the Lama is capable of conferring. All the materials are blessed, purified, and perfect. All the, um, the, the needs have been met. And the Lama that actually empowers the stupa is always a Lama of accomplishment. That is to say, uh, Rigzin Pema Rinpoche is known as a stupa Lama and maintains the stupa diet always and uh, maintains uh, retreat a lot of the time in order to keep the stupa-related accomplishments fresh in his mind um, as though it were like fresh bread, you know, uh, just right there at the tip of his tongue or the tip of his mind, however you would put it, uh, able to uh, be conferred. And then, of course, His Holiness Panor Rinpoche, who empowered the Enlightenment Stupam, is a living Buddha and is known worldwide as a living Buddha. And uh, in Tibet, people gather the steps that he walks on, gather the dirt that he walks on, and save it and put it on their altars, his footprint even. And uh, he, had, he, he never is not practicing. I, I've seen the way his mind works. He is like, well, he is a living Buddha. There is no other thing to say about it. And so now we have these amazing stupas. How amazing. So that even when the lamas are not here, we have this occurrence. Yes, she's snoring. <laughs> we have this occurrence of the living Buddha here on this property. And so that the living Buddha remains on this property. The problem is that our mind is so deluded and so... Ooh, kind of cloudy, washed over with mud and the inability to see clearly. We're so lacking in wisdom that we don't see that. We let the, the Buddhists sit there with no company, not that they need company, but we need them. Uh, rarely do we go and visit the Buddhas. Rarely do we make them offerings. Rarely do we offer them a little cleaning, you know, to take a little cloth and say, even though the Buddha doesn't need to be clean, may I offer you this, may I take this from you, this dirt from you. And by that merit, may all sentient beings be free of suffering. We don't do that because we've forgotten, because we, are, we go to sleep in our minds whenever our limit living Lama is not around to shake us awake. 
The teaching I want to give to you today is how to avoid that. First of all, let me tell you that the way normally uh, Asian cultures that, particularly Tibetans, I can speak for them, Asian cultures that have uh, stupas, uh, chotens, uh, available in their land, usually once a year around the time of New, of New Year's, Losar we call, around the time of New Year's, there are certain days where one does religious activity and that religious activity is increased by 100,000 or um, 10,000. And of course we have our 10 million days where we look to accomplish a great deal of practice. During times like that, uh, Tibetans always think of it as, as a very joyful occasion, particularly during Losar, a time to celebrate. They all get out and they, uh, the patrons, the wealthier patrons, and by the way, that's how they get to be wealthy, um, by the gold wash or the white wash or whatever color they are going to repaint the stupas with, and they clean the stupas and give them a fresh coat of gold or of white wash. And that's a very joyful thing because by that, because they realize how much merit they are accomplishing. And they are already, because of their confidence, are already enjoying the fruits of that. Because of their confidence, we're saying, well, when's it going to happen? <laughs> and they're saying, I rejoice in my future merit. By this merit, there will be plenty of clothing. I will be warm and comfortable. All sentient beings will be pleased. And this is tremendous. I am so happy about that. And so with that, the simplicity of a, just a joyful accomplishment, they are able to experience the happiness right away. And it's like a festival. And then after they finish doing that, there's always a lovely dinner. And, and maybe the great patrons will offer a beautiful dinner for the, for the sangha. And there's always like a beautiful soak offered to the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas. And it's a gathering of the Sangha and the Lamas and all the people that is extremely joyful because we all say by this merit we, may we never be separated. It becomes a very joyful event. And so, of course, then the stupas are living Buddhas that are brought into the occasion because they are, they are washed, they are cared for, uh, we offer great offerings to them. Of course, the eight auspicious offerings of water to drink, water to bathe in, all the different offerings and their different meanings. And we offer offerings of food and butter lamps or candles and and uh, um, sometimes we uh, uh, Tibetans will do things like make mani rocks, you know, write the mani mantra on rocks and offer many of those. So there are many things uh, that uh, the Tibetans do during that time to celebrate and to incorporate the stupas as living beings in their lives. Plus, the Tibetans that care for stupas would not think of letting the sun rise without offerings being present on the stupas. To let the sun rise without these offerings would be unthinkable. To let, that would be, in, in, the, in the way Tibetans are, have been taught in the way that they teach us, that would be like if you knew your root guru uh, had spent the night outside 
and was cold and hungry and needed, needed their, her attendance or his attendance to come, and no one brought him any tea to warm him. It would be like that. Would you do that to your root guru? Even before you took your own coffee in the morning, wouldn't you bring your guru his tea? I certainly would. I certainly would. I can't, can't, and what does that say? If we, if we have our own coffee in the morning before we make an offering to the Buddha that says my ego is more important, that says I take refuge in me, or I take refuge in my coffee, which I know is not hard to do. <laughs> and so, um, of course, we don't, all of us live with the stupas, and so each in our own way, in our homes, we maintain altars, and hopefully we make offerings to the Buddhas before we take any offering ourselves. Uh, uh, traditionally, lamas have like a little, um, it looks like a protector cup, but it's not exactly. It's a little kind of tiny cup like that, and it has a removable top thing that you can turn over. And a lot of times the lamas will take their first tea of the morning and offer it like that and put it up on the altar for the Buddhas. Such a simple gesture, gesture, but so beautiful and so profound. And to do that every day of one's life is quite beautiful. And some have the custom that whenever a family gathers for a big meal, the Buddha always gets the first portion. Whether it's here in the stupas, perhaps for Sunday meal, we can make the first portion and give the first portion to the stupa outside. You know? Or whether in a home family situation, the householder family can celebrate their lives together as Buddhists by creating a meal, whether it's an ordinary family meal, or whether it's Hanukkah, or whether it's Easter, or whether it's Christmas, and offering first portion to the Buddhas. And so that's why the way that a householder practices. But we should always think of the objects of refuge as being so sacred to us that we care for them very mindfully, so mindfully, that we really, through thought, word, and deed, indicate to ourselves in our own practice and also to all sentient beings that our caring is such that our eyes are open, spiritually our eyes are open, and we see the preciousness and the value of the objects of refuge. And that, that we recognize their exquisiteness and extraordinariness and how much more important they are than our own phenomena. We have difficulty breaking the hold of our own phenomena. We're so wrapped up in ourselves. Oh my goodness. We are so lost in our phenomena. We even say things like, I have a bad back so I can't work on the stupas. Well, if I had no back, I would find a way to crawl over and work on the stupas because that would be the cure. You see, that's applying the antidote. It's backwards thinking. We are... You might as well put your own phenomena up on the altar and prostrate to it. Oh, I prostrate to my deluded mind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I prostrate to my suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. We might as well. 
We, we're panicked we're suffering so much. I can see it in your faces. We don't know how to handle it. And yet we don't apply the antidote. And of course the antidote must be understood as serving the three precious jewels and honoring them and living the life that they indicate to us is the life of merit. So when we have stupas, when we have this tremendous opportunity to be with the Buddhas and the, the Bodhisattvas every day of our lives, this is what you have here. Every day of your life, if you choose, you can come and be with Guru Rinpoche himself. The relics of none other than my predecessor's root guru, who himself is the creator of the Paiyu lineage and the entire, the revealer of the entire Namchu cycle of teachings, Tertin Migyodorje, his relics are in the Migyodorje stupa. How I wish I had that stupa near me. In my mind, I circumambulate that stupa every day when I'm in Sedona. That stupa is the center of my heart for its meaning because Migyodorje is the center of my accomplishment. And so that stupa to me is so precious. And then when I come to see the stupas here, I see that I have failed in teaching you that somehow. Or you have failed in understanding it. I'm not sure which it is. But I come here and I see the stupas are cracked and peeling, dirty. The gardens around them aren't kept up. I mean, even in winter, you can tell when gardens are kept up. Gardens are sleeping. I know them because I'm a gardener, so... But the stupas have not been kept up properly. Um, even the vestibule where the guru sits, the, the Lord sits, where the, the Buddha sits, which should be like kept as intact as the very vestibule of our own heart so that the Buddha is properly enthroned within our heart. Even there I see the vestibule is, is um, green molded from lack of care, uh, cracked, opened up where the rain can get in it, how much better do you think your heart can be? I look at these stupas and I wonder if this is so, then what is the condition of my students? They must be suffering terribly and they must be terribly deluded, thinking that in their practice they're doing well and yet allowing these Buddhas to disintegrate in front of their eyes. I accept the blame. I think that I have failed. I have not instructed you carefully as to how you should care for the stupas. By leaving the stupas in a state of um, disintegration and abandonment, we are created the causes to never meet with our teacher again in this lifetime. At least we can say, at the very least, we are not creating the causes by which we can continue on the path. Because we have not cared for that object of refuge, we cannot be sure 
that the objects of refuge will always be either recognizable to us or available to us. And so the custom for Asians has always been that whenever we have a stupa that we can depend upon and rely upon, that that stupa should always be taken care, taken care of as though it were our own precious heart. If somehow we had to take our heart outside of our body and have it still care for our bodies through beating and pumping blood, but be outside, boy, we would... You know, I mean, this is a crazy scenario, but think about it. We'd be wanting to put that heart in a very clean place. We'd be wanting to make sure that heart was supplied with everything it needed. We'd want to think about purity, cleanliness, care. We would not abandon it or allow it to disintegrate. And so we must think of the stupas as being the very heart of our practice. That by, by the virtue of caring for the stupas, respecting them, seeing them as objects of refuge, rather than forgetting them and thinking of them as just stuff we have over there, like a park, like Dharma Disney, rather than thinking of them like that, we carefully took them into our own practice and said, this is what I will do for the liberation and benefit of all sentient beings. Because while the Lama is not here, there are two great accomplishments going on. Even if Dharma is not being taught right here, like the Lama is not present, we have a constant prayer visual where Dharma is being expressed and, and uh, recited and practiced for the liberation and salvation of all sentient beings. And we have the stupas that are living Buddhas. They are here for beings, not for show, for benefit, you see. I think the day should not pass where there are not monks and nuns circumambulating the stupas. The day should not pass. The day should not pass where there are lay people and their families circumambulating the stupas and reciting prayers. Prayers for the end of their own suffering and prayers for the end of suffering of all sentient beings. Now it's also said that the stupa has a mandala of enlightened activity around it, the same as a living Buddha does. That is to say that a stupa that is powerfully consecrated with relics and uh, consecrated by an enlightened lama who has accomplished the mantra, then that stupa has a radius of about a hundred miles of influence. Isn't that amazing? And yet we are not keeping that strength going, that fire going. Because the power of the stupas will be by definition of mind, diminished because our minds are not with them. And so it's a terrible, terrible, frightful waste. 
It's really like having all the llamas of the lineage across the street. Oh, we pride ourselves that we have robes and we can go places and we can do practices. And we can, you know, some of us even have the more advanced practices. We can stare at bindus and stuff like that. But to not walk across the street and take care of the stupas, you can say we have no practice. You could say that. Because it's like the llamas of the lineage are there and no one is honoring them. We call them to our practice. We pray to the lamas of the lineage. We visualize them gathering in front of us, but we abandon them. And so what is this cartoon in the sky in front? When we have abandoned the actual Nirmanakaya form. They say that, again, the Lama, uh, the Lama, uh, well, a Lama too, but also the stupas have this 100-mile radius, approximately, of activity. I built these stupas here because of our government. I was hoping that it would influence our government. And as yet, I don't think that has happened. Uh, I, don't, I could be wrong, but I don't see it. And so what I'm wondering is if I could prevail upon each and every one of you to take these stupas into your heart, to think of them as your guides, your objects of refuge, and to honor them in the way that they should be honored so that the lamas through, the, through these magnificent stupas can carry out their enlightened activity. Because these stupas are an extension and an appearance of the Buddha's enlightened activity. It's up to us, though, to plant that firmly in the world, to make the roots deep, and to keep the causes pure and untainted for future accomplishment and future happiness. There are so many stories in uh, Buddhist teachings about particular um, practitioners that came to their own fruition through some slight, almost mindless deed in the past concerning a stupa. I'm a terrible Buddhist uh, 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 storyteller because I forget the details and I get the punchlines wrong and, but I'll try I'll try to tell you a little bit of what I remember there was this one story for instance about a pig who was being chased by a dog and the pig was a pig he had been wallowing in mud you know he was all dirty he had a muddy body and a muddy face and a muddy tail. And the dog thought, oh, I'm going to get me some pork chops and start chasing the pig. And round and round this stupa they went. And by the time they went round the stupa a few times, the pig smashed into the stupa accidentally and the mud from his body fixed a little crack in the stupa. And that stupa was reborn in Daewachan or some enlightened paradise because of that cause and was immediately, immediately received teachings and the ability of accomplishment and was reborn as a bodhisattva and was given every means to accomplish and accomplishment was gained. A pig! 
accidentally. These stories are told to us as an indication of what you're missing, of how amazing the merit is of caring for the body of the Buddha. Conversely, we are told that to leave a stupa in decay and to not honor the stupa properly will bring nothing but obstacles. And we've had lots of obstacles here. We've had obstacles to seeing the teacher. And, that, and that's me. <laughs> and I've tried very hard to get here many times. And yet there are obstacles. And I believe in my heart that these obstacles are because when I left, the stupas were not like this. And I've returned to this. And this is the body of the Buddha. Now, I'm not saying this to make myself seem like a high up person or anything like that. I'm only repeating, and, and normally in monasteries, the Kempos get to tell these stories about their lamas. And I wish we had that condition, but we don't. So allow me to just commit the non-virtue of telling you what the other lamas have said about me. They've said that if you don't see this teacher very much because of who she is, you should understand that this is because your own merit is diminishing, not because she's not here to serve you, not because she doesn't want to serve you. It's strictly cause and result here that because of the nature of this teacher, and I tell you because of the nature of my teacher and because of the nature of the other teachers of this lineage, their merit is such and their accomplishment is such that we must always create the causes of continuing, continuing to meet with them. They're just not a co collection of Tibetan jamokes, you know, that, that, you know, do their thing over there and then come and do it over here. These are beings who have accomplished Dharma and who have returned solely to benefit sentient beings. So their only wish is to bring benefit. And yet we are not creating the causes for that. Now that, that I know what the stupas look like, I will wait before I ask His Holiness to return here until they are better. I would not break his heart like that. And I'm not saying like, I'm a good mama and you're bad kids. It's not like that. I'm telling you that this is your practice. I want you to be happy. I want you to be free of obstacles. I want you to attain that pure awakened state where you know what to accept and what to reject. And I say to you, reject your own phenomena that tells you, I don't wanna. I'd rather have fun. Reject your own phenomena that says, oh, I can't because I'm sick, I got a headache, I got blah, 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 blah. Reject your own phenomena and accomplish Dharma instead. Go to the stupa, and if you can bend a little bit, you can bend to offer. If you bend, you can bend a little bit, you can bend to clean. I tell you, if you are sick to death and worried for your life, you should crawl to the Migyur Dorje stupa saying prayers all the way because that's what a smart Tibetan would do. 
That's what I would do. If you can't walk, get there anyhow. Now, I, I, have, I have seen amazing things. My own students do amazing things that uh, when they weren't healthy or when they weren't fit, they would do amazing things and they would benefit the stupa and create the causes for continued accomplishment. I've seen the new amazing things. I, see, I saw once one nun who was determined to get to one of my teachings. Her knees were so bad she couldn't walk. I saw her on crawling, crawling. And I immediately dedicated that merit to her swift enlightenment. And I, you know, I didn't think to myself, oh, look at that, she's crawling to see me. I thought to myself, hey, Maho, how beautiful. How beautiful. And so we have to stop thinking in such an ordinary way. We have to start thinking in the way of Dharma, in the way of practitioners. You can't wear robes and live an ordinary life. You have to do for the sentient beings. You have to maintain this garden of refuge across the street for their sake, as well as your own. You have to do for the Sangha. It's just as much merit to do for the Sangha, to make offerings to the stupas, to make offerings to the lamas. This is extraordinary. To make offerings even to the Sangha. I know the wonderful Yang family uh, has been uh, offering food for the, uh, the Lam, for myself and also for the Sangha here. What a tremendous, tremendous gathering of virtue that is. What, a, what an awesome family. What values to teach your children. My goodness. What an extraordinary wealth to pass on to your young. Yeah, sure, you could pass on a few dollars, but what is that? To pass on the wealth of how to be happy. My goodness. And yet we just, you know, kind of trudge around in our habitual tendencies without seeing the beauty of it all, the wonder of it all. The here in this place lives Lord Buddha himself, Guru Rinpoche himself, without doubt, in Nirmanakaya form, and we can always go to pray. You know, we, say, we, we might say, oh, I can't practice right now because my practice is not going very well. But that's when you practice. That's when you crawl across the street to the stupa, if you have to, and you recite to the stupa prayers. You say, please, I'm begging you with tears in my eyes. Help me in my practice. Come to me as wisdom. Clear my self-absorption so that I can benefit sentient beings. And before I die, let me do something meaningful other than to hang out with my own dis distorted phenomena. Let me make this world a place with less suffering. Please, I'll do anything. You lay down your pride. You lay down your thoughts. You lay down your body, you lay down your efforts, 
you lay down your offerings and you rise up a practitioner. And that's the way of Dharma is to turn our minds from ordinary things, <clears throat> those things that are so relentlessly stupid as to take off all of our time <clears throat> and all of our effort and give us zero, zilch, nothing in return. And to pick up and accept and cherish that which is here for us, that which holds out its arms to us like our own primordial mother and says, come, I'm here for you. Bring the others. I'm here. Do not turn a blind eye to these offerings that I and other lamas have given you. They are for you. These stupas, what we have here, is only for you. And so I ask you to accept once again, I ask you not to be beggars under the table, lapping up crumbs, but come to the feast. Come to the feast at last. And that's our Dharma talk for today. I hope it is of some benefit to you. And I really sincerely mean for this to result in activity. Even, um, let, me, let me make one more mention. We talk about creating the causes for bringing the Lama back. <clears throat> so we maintain the house for the Lama. <clears throat> when the Lama is not here, the Lama's chair should have a comfortable, you know, if the Lama has a habit of putting a wrap on their legs, when, the, you know, when they're by their chair, the wrap should be by the chair. The Lama's slippers should be by his bed. The Lama's favorite cup should be out on the counter. The Lama's altar should be opened every day. If you really want to create the Lama's return, that's how you do it. The Lama never leaves. When the Lama is not here, the Lama's picture should be on the throne. And we should think like that. The Lama has never left. And that's our practice. That's our guru yoga. And we have the visible means of support using the stupas that way as well. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot